true man of God and has been influential in many of your lives already. Believe that will be standing today. Let's welcome my friend, our guest speaker, Justin Hughes. Good morning. Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. It is a joy to be with you. Uh, it really, really is. Uh, really enjoyed our last couple of days with John and Linda and so very grateful for them. What dear, dear people. What sweet people they are. And um, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to have John as my friend. And, and uh, for those of you who are already members of this church, uh, you know what special people they are if you're a guest. And uh, maybe, maybe you live in the area, you're looking for a, a good doctrinally sound church uh, that you can have, that you can be fed, that you can have fellowship with the saints, be encouraged, be accountable, and um, this would be a good church, It'd be a good church to, to call your, your church home. So let's go to the Lord and a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, we're so very grateful for this time that you've given to, to us, and we pray that uh, as we go to your word, that your Holy Spirit would do his work, that he would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that he would convict of the truth of the gospel, that he would illumine the meaning of your word to our hearts, to our minds, that we would live lives of obedience to your word, to the glory of our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's word and open to the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16. Luke 16 will be in verses 19 through 31. This is a message I have entitled Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. And that title will mean more to us, I think, as we work our way through the text. This is the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And I will read the text and then uh, we will go back through it verse by verse. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. 
For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. This is not a warm, fuzzy passage of scripture. You're not going to read about this in Chicken Soup for the Soul. You will never hear Joel Osteen reference this passage. But dear friends, this is just as much inspired and authoritative as any other passage in Scripture. On many levels, this is a disturbing passage. This is a disturbing story. It is jarring to us. But I trust that for those of us who are in Christ, as we work our way through this passage, we will see that this passage is also a great encouragement to us as believers. Now, let me set the scene here just a little bit. Flip over probably just a page or so in your Bible. Look at Luke chapter 15. This is just to set the scene. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now all of the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisee and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So as chapter 15 opens, we see a large group of people that had gathered around Christ. Tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, scribes, a large group of people came around to listen to Jesus. But look at chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Now he was also saying to the disciples. So as chapter 15 opens, a large group of people had gathered around Christ. But as chapter 16 opens, Jesus turns his attention away from the crowd, and now he's addressing only his disciples. He's no longer talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and the tax collectors and the sinners. He's turned his attention to his disciples and he is addressing only them. But look at verse 14. It says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of what? Money, were listening to all of these things and were scoffing at him. So even though Jesus had turned his attention away from the large group of people, and now he is addressing only his disciples. Notice, who never left the scene? The Pharisees were still there. They were still there in the background, kind of hanging around, eavesdropping on what Jesus was saying. They were still there. And the Bible says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And so this passage, this story, would have absolutely scandalized the Pharisees. So let's go to our text here. In verse 19, Jesus says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The picture here is one of extreme opulence. This rich man had everything that the world could possibly offer. It says that he habitually dressed in purple, and fine linen. Now, purple 
was a very difficult color to manufacture 2,000 years ago. Purple was actually derived from the oil of snails, and it was very labor-intensive. So if you had an entire garment made out of purple 2,000 years ago, then you were a man of means. Now, this fellow, it says that he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. So this fellow apparently not only had an entire garment that was made out of purple and fine linen, he apparently had a whole wardrobe full of purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The picture here is extreme opulence. This man had everything that the world could offer. This was the Bill Gates of the ancient world. He had everything, a whole wardrobe full of purple and fine linen, living in splendor. Undoubtedly, he lived in a very nice palatial home. Undoubtedly, he had the finest food, and undoubtedly, he was being waited on hand and foot by a whole bevy of servants. He had everything that the world could offer. He had arrived. This guy had it all. But look at verse 20. It says, A poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. The picture here is the exact opposite. The rich man had everything that the world could offer. Lazarus however, had absolutely nothing. Notice that it says that Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate. Lazarus didn't walk there on his own. Lazarus was picked up, carried, and laid there. Lazarus was crippled. Lazarus could not even move about on his own. And wherever Lazarus was laid, that's where Lazarus stayed, crippled unable to move, laid at the rich man's gate, covered with sores, open, oozing, infected, diseased, raw sores, covering his entire body. Graphic. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Lazarus was crippled, he was diseased, covered with open sores, and Lazarus was starving. Undoubtedly, Lazarus looked like a, a skeleton with skin draped over it. Diseased skin at that. This is a very graphic picture. And then, as if it couldn't get any worse, to add insult to injury, it says, besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now friends, when we read dogs in the New Testament, we shouldn't think of a happy little cocker spaniel. This was not some little frou-frou dog that you put a little jacket on and a bow in its hair. These were wild dogs. And they were licking Lazarus, not to comfort him, but they were tormenting him. Lazarus couldn't get away from them. This is a graphic, jarring picture. And you could not have two more polar opposites. The rich man with everything that the world could possibly offer. 
and Lazarus, absolutely nothing. Crippled, diseased, starving, tormented by wild animals. Could not have two more polar extremes. We don't know the name of the rich man, but we do know the name of the poor man, Lazarus. And Jesus includes Lazarus' name here, I believe for a very specific reason. Lazarus, the name Lazarus means something. It's derived from the name Eleazar, which literally means God helps. Lazarus means God helps. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you think that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. Hint, it's not. Uh, A number of years ago, I was watching Bill O'Reilly when he had his program, and Bill O'Reilly was talking to some priest interviewing interviewing him for something, and Bill O'Reilly said, my favorite Bible verse is God helps those who help themselves. (laughs) Not only is that not in the Bible, it's not even a biblical concept. Dear friends, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who understand that they cannot help themselves. Lazarus could do nothing for himself. He was as helpless as an infant. He was completely dependent upon the mercies of others for survival. Lazarus could do nothing for himself. And just as helpless as Lazarus was physically, you and I are just that helpless spiritually. There is nothing that you and I can do for ourselves. There is nothing that you and I can do to ingratiate ourselves to a thrice holy God. We cannot help enough little old ladies across the street. Our good works will not save us. The Bible says your works are as filthy rags before a thrice holy God. And yet so many people today, they have this vague notion that as long as their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, then God will accept them into heaven. And most people think of themselves as being good people. And I guarantee you, if you were to go up to 100 people at random out on the streets of Phoenix and ask them, do you consider yourself to be a good person? I guarantee you 99, if not 100 of them will say, yeah, yeah, I'm a good person. And almost all of us think of ourselves as good people because what we like to do is we like to compare ourselves to other people. And if I were to compare myself to Saddam Hussein or Benito Mussolini or Adolf Hitler or Adam Lanza, that guy a few years ago that shot all those children in the elementary school, oh, I've never done any of those things. I'm not like those people. Those are the bad people. I'm not like that. I'm a good person. But dear friends, God does not evaluate our goodness by comparing us to other people. He evaluates our goodness by comparing us to Himself. And none of us compared to God are good. None of us. There is none righteous. No, not even one, says Paul in Romans chapter 3. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Not even one. And Jesus was very clear in Mark chapter 10 as He talked talked to the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler said, Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. 
Jesus was not correcting him, by the way. Jesus was leading him. Oh, young man, you, you call me good. Why? Why do you call me good? Do you call me good because you think I'm a nice person who does, does some nice things for people and I spin some good yarns and tell some good stories? Is that why you call me good? Or do you call me good because you understand the implications of what you just said? Do you call me good because you understand that I am good because I am God? He was not correcting him. He was leading him. Dear friends, there is only one who is good, and that is God. You are not a good person. I am not a good person. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all broken God's laws. We are all liars. Let God be true and most men liars. Let God be true and every man a liar. You're a liar. I'm a liar. We've all told lies. Thou shalt not steal. If you have ever taken something that does not belong to you, you are a thief. It does not matter how insignificant the item may have been that you took. If you took something that does not belong to you, you're a thief. We're liars. We're thieves. We are blasphemers. We have blasphemed the name of God in word and deed. And dear friends, blasphemy, by the way, taking the Lord's name in vain is a lot more than just saying OMG. We sin, we blaspheme the name of God in word and deed. And we are adulterers at heart at least. Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you have ever looked at another person with lust, you are an adulterer. And just like we, when we break laws here on earth, there is a penalty to be paid. How much more so when we break the laws of God? But because we have sinned against God who is eternal, the punishment of that sin is also eternal. We have sinned against one of infinite value, of infinite worth. And because we have sinned against God who is infinite, the punishment of that sin is also infinite. And if we die in our sins, we will very rightly and very justly go to a very real place that the Bible calls hell. That is what our sins have earned us. We cannot work our way into heaven. If we were to commit a crime here on earth, or we were, if we were to commit some heinous crime, if we were to murder someone or some violent crime like that and then stand before the judge in our day of, in court, all the evidence was there, we'd been found guilty, security cameras rolling, we're guilty. And the judge says, Justin, you've been found guilty, you murdered someone in cold blood, do you have anything for, to say for yourself before I pass sentence? If I were to say, well, God, uh, well, Judge, I, I think you're a good judge. And because you're a good judge, I think you should let me go. And, Judge, I've only killed one person one day of my life. I li I've lived thousands of other days of my life. I've never killed anybody. Just this one day, I killed this one person. So my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I think you should let me go. What if the judge said this? Huh. Well, Justin, yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. I've never really thought of it that way. You're right. Um, I am a good judge, so, yep, I'm going to let you go. We'll, you're free to go. We'll see you later. Have a nice day. And I were to walk out the door. Would that be a good judge? No, that would be a terrible judge because a good judge must punish crime. God is the ultimate good judge, and he must punish sin. 
If he did not punish sin, then he would not be good. And so a lot of people who think, oh, well, God's a good God and he's going to let me off the hook because he's good. Yeah, I've done a few bad things, but God's good. They're counting on the goodness of God to let them off the hook. It is the goodness of God that will condemn them. There is only one who is good, and that is God. And there is nothing that you and I can do to overcome the debt that our sin has earned. There's nothing that we can do. We are helpless. We are helpless before a thrice holy God. Lazarus, God helps. God helps those who understand they cannot help themselves. Verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Death is the great equalizer. Dear friends, it does not matter how much you have or how little you have. It does not matter who you know or who knows you. It does not matter on which side of the tracks you were raised. Death will come to us all. Death is an appointment that each and every person in here will one day meet. It is appointed man once to die and then the judgment. Death is coming to each and every one of us. Ain't none of us getting out of this thing alive. We will all one day die. Now, undoubtedly, when Lazarus died, no big surprise, right? I mean, Lazarus was crippled, he was starving, he was diseased, being tormented by wild dogs. He was at death's door anyway. So, no big surprise when Lazarus died. But apparently, the rich man also died at just about the same time. And death undoubtedly came as quite as the surprise to the rich man because he was living it up. He was joyously living in splendor every day and then all of a sudden death came to him too. Death is an appointment you and I will all one day meet. And for some of us, death may be a whole lot closer than what we ever imagined. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We are not guaranteed that we will leave this building alive. Death will come for us all, and sometimes it comes at the most unexpected of times. We must be ready to meet that appointment. Now, when the rich man died, undoubtedly, he had a very nice funeral. Undoubtedly, his body was well cared for, wrapped in some nice linens, and his body anointed with oils and spices, and undoubtedly, his body was well cared for, and laid in a very nice, ornate tomb. There were probably a lot of important people that had gathered around for the funeral for the rich man because you know, he was important. Big fancy funeral for the rich man. No such fancy funeral for Lazarus, however. Undoubtedly, what happened to Lazarus's body is the same thing that happened to all of the bodies of the poor and the diseased in that day. His body was picked up and carried and outside of the city gates and dumped. Probably wasn't even buried, just dumped in a pile of garbage to be consumed either by wild animals or fire or some combination of all that. No fancy funeral for Lazarus. 
No fancy speeches over Lazarus' body. No fancy important people were there when Lazarus was taken away. But notice in the text, notice, notice who his pallbearers were. It says that he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. You know, dear ones, I don't spend any time thinking about what my funeral is going to be like one day. I don't care what you do with my body. You can cut my toes off if you want to. I won't be here. I won't care. I don't care who's there. The only thing that I really want at my funeral is I want the gospel to be preached. I want the gospel to be preached. But beyond that, I don't care. I ain't going to be here. But you know what? I want these pallbearers. I want to be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful, doulos, slave. Well done, good and faithful, slave. I want those pallbearers. And I want to hear those words. And the only way that you will have the pallbearers that Lazarus had, the only way that you will hear those words from the Savior is to be in the Savior, is to be in Christ. The only way to have the wrath of God removed that we deserve is to repent of sin, turn from your sin, and place your trust in the finished atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross and what He did for you. You and I have no righteousness of our own. We must have the righteousness of another. We must have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the only way to have these pallbearers is to be in Him. To repent of sin, turn from sin, and place your trust in Christ. And when you repent of sins and you place your trust in Christ, the righteousness that Jesus has is imputed to you, it's imputed to me, it's counted to us. We are not inherently righteous, but we will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And that is the only way to know that one day when your Hebrews 9.27 time comes, when it, that time comes for you to meet death, that is the only way to know that you will have these pallbearers. It's to be in Christ. Verse 23. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. There is so much in that one verse. The rich man died went to the lake of fire, Hades, the lake of fire, which one day will become hell with a capital H. Verse 24, Lazarus died, went to Abraham's bosom. Dear friends, it would be a mistake to assume that the rich man went to the lake of fire because he was rich. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom because he was poor. That is not the point of the text. There is nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing inherently honorable in being poor. Each man went where he was spiritually pre prepared to go. But in the Pharisees' way of thinking, you see, the rich man was rich because God was blessing him, and that was a sure sign of God's favor. This man is in good with God. 
God is smiling on him. God is blessing him. Look, he must be in good with God. Surely he is approved by God because look at what he's got. This would have absolutely scandalized the Pharisees. And notice that it said, When he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, he saw Abraham far away, Lazarus in his bosom. He cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. Dear ones, we should not soft-pedal hell. I have heard so many preachers over the years say something like this, if you die in your sins, you will be eternally separated from God. That's not entirely true. That's not entirely true. Do you know what the most terrifying thing about hell is? God. Because He's there. He is there in His wrath. Read Revelation chapter 14, 19 and 11. Those who are in the lake of fire, it says, they will be tormented day and night in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, Christ. The most terrifying thing about hell is God because He is there. He is there in His wrath. And God will pour out His wrath. The full, undiluted fury of the wrath of God will be poured out on those who refused Him. The worm will not die. The fire will not be quenched. Wailing, weeping, gnashing of teeth. And it will never end. People in hell are separated from God relationally. There's no relationship there. There's no fellowship there with God. There's no love exchanged between the condemned and God. They are, they are separated from God relationally. But judicially, they are in the presence of Christ. And His wrath will be poured out for all of eternity. Let's not soft pedal hell. And notice too, notice that he addresses Abraham. He cried out and he said, Father Abraham, Father Abraham. There's a lot in that. Because the rich man, when he found himself in the lake of fire, he somehow had this ability to see across this great chasm. Not that he could cross it, but he could see across it. And he saw Abraham, recognized him, called him by name and even gave him a title of respect, Father Abraham. Father Abraham? This is a man who's in hell. This is a man in the lake of fire being tormented for all of eternity. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham. Dear friends, this was not an atheist. This was a religious man. This was a man who had been taught the scriptures. He saw Abraham, recognized him, called him by name. This was a religious man. This was not someone working for the ACLU. This was not someone working for people for the American way. This was a church-going fella, quote-unquote. Religious. He knew the scriptures. What's he doing in the lake of fire? 
Dear ones, I am the first to champion doctrine and theology in studying the scriptures. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Read and study God's word, absolutely. Fill your head full of the word of God. But make sure that your head knowledge has penetrated to your heart. There will be a lot of theologians in hell. There's going to be some pastors in hell. Make sure that head knowledge has penetrated your heart. This guy had head knowledge. He had it. He, he knew the scriptures. But that head knowledge had not penetrated his heart. How do we know that? Because not only did he recognize Abraham, guess who else he recognized? Lazarus. It's not that he didn't know Lazarus was laid at his, at his gate. Oh yeah, he knew it. Not only did he know Lazarus was laid at his gate, he even knew the guy's name. Called him by name, Lazarus. Send Lazarus so they may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. On earth, the rich man would not lift his finger to help Lazarus. But now you see, now he wants Lazarus to lift his finger, dip it in water, and help him. Oh, he knew some Bible, but that head knowledge had not penetrated his heart. It had not changed him. Almost all of us in here, we know Scripture. We know some Bible, and, and in a church like this, we're way ahead of the curve regarding most other churches and what we know. That's good. That's good. But make sure that head knowledge has penetrated your heart. Has there been a change in your life? Has the Word of God changed you? Are your desires different now than they were before? Have your affections been changed? And do you have a godly sorrow over your sin? The Bible speaks of two different kinds of sorrow over sin, and it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And this is something that I wish I would hear preached more often because the difference between these two different, these different kinds of sorrows over sin is literally the difference between heaven and hell. It is the difference between someone who is truly regenerate in Christ and someone who is a false professor of Christ. Someone who might claim to be a Christian but is not truly a Christian. And it's the difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says that a worldly sorrow leads to death. What is this worldly sorrow? A worldly sorrow is nothing more than a guilty conscience. And you know what? Everybody's got that. Everybody's got that. You don't have to teach anyone that it's wrong to murder. People instinctively know that. Why? Because it has been written on us, it's been inscribed in our consciousness and our hearts. We know it's wrong to murder. We know it's wrong to lie. We know it's wrong to steal. We instinctively know that. So it's not just a it's not just acknowledging that you're a sinner. A worldly sorrow is nothing more than having a guilty conscience about it. A worldly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that says this, what would happen to me if my sin were exposed? What would be the consequences to me? If people really knew what I was doing behind closed doors, 
if people knew, if my wife knew what I was looking at on the computer, what would be the consequences to me? What would happen to me? That's a worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow is when we try to cover up our sin. Not because we grieve over it, but because we don't want the consequences of it. But if we could get away with it, you see, if nobody would know what we're doing behind closed doors, if nobody would know what we're looking at, if nobody would know about my sin, if we could get away with it, we'd go right back to it. That is a worldly sorrow over sin. And the Bible says that a worldly sorrow leads to death, eternal death. But there's another kind of sorrow over sin, and that is a godly sorrow. What's a godly sorrow? A godly sorrow over sin is that sorrow that is vertically oriented. A godly sorrow over sin comes when we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. And we do not want to grieve Him. We do not want to grieve His person. A godly sorrow over sin is the kind of sorrow that David had. In Psalm chapter 51, you might remember that David had committed horrific sin. He committed adultery, and then he committed murder to try to cover up his adultery. And then God sent Nathan to him. And Nathan did what a good friend should do. Nathan goes up to David and he points his finger at him and he confronts David in his sin. In his sin, he says, you are the man. And God used that to shatter David. And David cried out, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. You are righteous when you speak. You are blameless when you judge. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. That's a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow over sin comes when we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God and we do not want to grieve Him. He has been so good. He has been so kind. He has been so merciful. He has given us so much and yet we sin against Him and it grieves us. Do you grieve over your sin? It is good and it is right to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. It is good and it is right to warn people to flee from hell. As we were just talking about it, you should warn people to flee hell. But you know what, dear friends? Just as much as we should want a Savior from hell, we should want a Savior from our sin. There's a lot of people out there that want deliverance from hell because their conscience convicts them. It accuses them. And they know that's what they deserve, and they want to escape that place. That's good. But there's far fewer people who want a Savior from their sin. Just as much as you should want a Savior from hell, you should want a Savior from sin. And dear ones, the, the person who wants a Savior from hell but not a Savior from sin has a Savior from neither. Do you grieve over your sin? Godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. And there is a difference as wide as all of eternity between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. The rich man had a worldly sorrow. His head knowledge had not penetrated his heart. Verse 25, 
But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. The great reversal. Death is the great equalizer. And now we see the great reversal. The rich man had everything he could, off, could have in the world. Lazarus had nothing. Now everything is reversed. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. When we die, each and every one of us will go to one of two places and we will be there for all of eternity. There are no second chances. There's no such thing as purgatory. That is a fabrication of the Roman Catholic Church. It does not exist. When you die... When I die, we will each go to one of two places and we will be there for all of eternity. Great chasm fixed. Look at verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Finally, the rich man is thinking about somebody besides himself. But it's far too little and it's far too late. He said, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers so he can warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Thinking about his brothers at least. And if you read between the lines here a little bit, apparently if Lazarus had been able to go back to his father's house and warn his five brothers, apparently the five brothers would have also recognized Lazarus, so it's not looking real good for the five brothers either. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets had been dead for centuries. How could they possibly hear Moses and the prophets? This is how. This is how they hear Moses and the prophets. In the scriptures, they have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the word of God. They have the scriptures. Let them hear them. And how did the rich man respond? No, Father Abraham. That's not enough. That's not enough. The word of God is not enough. If they could just see a miracle, if, if Lazarus would just come to them from the dead, then they'll believe then they'll repent. If they could see Lazarus come back from the dead, that'll get their attention. If they will not hear Moses, if they will not hear the prophets, neither will they believe, even if someone were to come back from the dead. Dear friends, there is an inherent power in this book that is found nowhere else. Not in miracles, not in signs and wonders, and yet there's this whole swath of professing Christianity, and please do note my use of the term professing Christianity. This whole swath that believe the real power of God is in signs and wonders. Oh, we, the, the Holy Spirit is moving in our church because we have signs and wonders. We have, we have angel feathers falling out of the sky. Gold dust shows up in our services. It's, it's the Shekinah glory. It's the gold dust. I've got gold dust on my Bible. Look at that gold dust. And here's my angel feather. 
That's not the power of God. That's a trick. It's a parlor trick. I actually have talked to a woman in one of these large churches, El Rey Jesus in Miami, Florida, that God graciously saved out of that church. She used to put gold dust in the ventilation system. It would blow out on people. in the power of God. These are tricks. You hear about people from time to time, oh God, God's turning people's tooth fillings into gold. I got, I got gold tooth filling. It was silver, now it's gold. Ooh, that's the power of God. It's not the power of God. That's nonsense. Why in the world would God change somebody's tooth filling into gold? I mean, forget about giving me gold tooth fillings, just heal my stupid tooth. These are parley tricks. These are, these are de this deception. You know, and Todd White going around lengthening people's legs on YouTube by about half an inch. It's not the power of God. It's a trick. Charlatans have been doing it for decades. It's not the power of God. The power of God is not in signs and wonders. And one day there will be lying signs and wonders, much more convincing than Todd, what Todd White does, by the way. But they're lying Signs and wonders, it's deception. That's not the power of God. The power of God is the gospel. If they will not hear Moses, if they will not hear the prophets, neither will they believe, even if someone were to come back from the dead. And then there's this whole other swath of professing Christianity, and they're not so much into the signs and wonder stuff. They're more into the seeker-sensitive approaches to doing church. We're going to make church fun. We're going to make church entertaining. And you know, we need to attract lost people. And so we need to reach out to the world and, and try to draw the world into our church. So we're going to look like the world so we can attract the world in here. And so we're not going to talk much about sin. We're not going to talk much about denying yourself or taking up the cross because the world doesn't want to hear that. We're going to talk about how Jesus can give you a better life. We're going, to have, we're going to talk about how the gospel will, will enhance your life and make your life better. If you'll just become a Christian, you'll have a better life. And we're going, to, we're going to use worldly music, and we're going to entertain people. We're going to have the smoke machines and the, you know, the strobe lights and all this, and we're going to have rock bands, and, and we're going to sing worldly songs in our music. And one time, I kid you not, I went to one of these churches. Kathy and I did, not for edification, just for research. But we went to one of these churches, and... and the song that they sang, this was Ed Young's church, Southern Baptist, by the way, Ed Young Jr.'s church in Dallas-Fort Worth, and they sang Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. It was their primary worship song. That's not a church. That's a goat farm. And these pr same preachers Oh, if you were to ask them, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Yes, we believe the Bible is the inspired, authoritative Word of God. Well, I can tell you by how they preach and how they do church that they don't really believe that. Because if they did, they would recognize that they do not have to entertain people to draw people or to keep people. They would realize that it is the power of God, the Word of God is the power of God. The power of God is the gospel not in making your church look like the world. That is an insult to the Word of God. And so whether it's the signs and wonders stuff or the seeker-sensitive stuff, all these churches, what they are saying is we do not really believe 
that this book is strong enough to draw people, to change people, and to keep people. So we're going to make church look fun. And we're going to give them lying signs and wonders because this just won't do it. Preaching this book verse by verse, that just, it, it just won't cut it. People just won't come for that. Here's the thing. Goats won't come for that. They won't. But sheep will. Because sheep want to be fed. And that's what a church is. It is a, it's a local gathering of sheep. If you want to really see the power of God unleashed, don't go to the signs and wonder stuff. Don't go to the secret sensitive stuff. Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes along. Every few years there's some, you know, there's some new fad that comes down the evangelical pike. You know, early 2000s it was the passion of the Christ and everybody was so excited about the passion of the Christ. Oh, it's just, evangelicals just flock to the theaters and I heard people talk about, oh, this is the passion of the Christ. This is the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. Dear friends, I would submit to you that this book is the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time, not some dopey movie. And every few years, there's these fads, you know. Remember the prayer of Jabez? Oh, let's prayer, pray the prayer of Jabez. Anybody here still praying the prayer of Jabez? Why not? Because it's a fad. These things come and go. The Word of God stands forever. If you want to see the real power of God unleashed, take this book out in the highways and the hedges. Take the gospel to people. I suppose every evangelist has an um, airplane story, and every preacher's got an airplane story, things that... And I've got a number of them, but one of the ones that really stands out to me, a number of years ago, seven, eight years ago, I guess, I was on a plane, and I, I don't even remember where I was flying on this particular flight. But uh, because of my handicap, they let me on the plane first, pre-board, and so, um, so I can get to my seat and get settled and, you know, get my crutches out of the way and all that stuff. And, um, and so after, after I pre-board, if there's any other handicapped person, they, they're pre-board, and and, uh, and then right after that, the other passengers come on the plane. And so this particular flight, my seat was literally the very last row. It's in the way back of the plane. Last row. And uh, I had an aisle seat. And so I, I walked down, sat down, and the stewardess got my crutches and put them in the overhead. And, and uh, then right after that, I, other passengers start to come on. And I, I'm just watching the you know, passengers filter on. And I look down the aisle. And this old man is walking down the aisle. And he's got a cane. And I was just kind of watching him. And then I happened to notice that he was, the hat that he was wearing, he was wearing a navy blue baseball cap. And on the front of the hat, in big gold letters, WWII Veteran. And I've always had a bit of an interest in history. And so I saw that old man in his World War II veteran hat, and I just said a quick prayer. I said, Lord, please let him sit next to me. And wouldn't you know it, he came all the way down the aisle, and his seat was right next to mine. And so he kind of 
managed to climb over me and squeeze between me and the next row in front of us, and he sat down. And, um, you know, I let him get settled or whatever, and, and after he did, I, I just introduced myself. I said, I said, good morning, my name is Justin. I said, what's your name? And he said, really nice guy. He said, hi, Justin, I'm Fred. And I said, well, hey, Mr. Fred, nice to meet you. And so he made small talk, you know, where are you going, this and that, I don't even remember. Um, and I said, Mr. Fred, I, I see from your hat you're a World War II veteran. And he said, yes, I am. And I said, well, which theater were you in? Were you in uh, Asia or Pacific? And he told me he was in, I mean, excuse me, Asia or Europe, Pacific or Europe theater, European theater. And he said, I was in Europe. And he said, oh, I said, oh, uh, my grandfather was also in Europe in World War II. And, and so that started up a conversation. And it turns out Mr. Fred was a soldier, infantry, uh, was in the Battle of the Bulge, and he started telling me about some of the things he experienced as a soldier. And he told me about being in the trenches, hearing the bullets zinging overhead, explosions going off, heat of battle and all of that. And I said, uh, I said, oh, Mr. Fred, I, I bet when you were in battle, it, you had to wonder from time to time what would have happened to you if one of those bullets had had your name on it, where you would have gone. And he said, yeah, Justin, I, I do wonder. And I said, well, Mr. Fred, one of these days we're all going to die. I said, when that time does come for you, do you know where you're going to go? And he said, no, Justin, I don't. And I said, Mr. Fred, can I share with you what the Word of God has to say about that? And never as long as I live will I forget his response. He said, I wish you would. And so for the next few minutes, I shared the gospel with him. I told Fred how we are all sinners. We have all broken God's laws. Our, sin have, our sins have earned us the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I told him who Jesus is, what he did on the cross fully God, fully man, laid down his life on the cross, bore the wrath of God so that we would not have to, bodily raised from the dead three days later, talked to him about repentance and placing our faith in him. And uh, I just went through the gospel with him. And I said, I said, Mr. Fred, does that make sense to you? And he said, yes, Justin, it does. And he said, I've never heard that before. I mean, this the man was... At, at the time, he was probably mid-80s, living in the United States of America. I've never heard that before. And I said, well, do you have any questions? And, and I, he did have a couple of questions, and, and I answered those, and we talked a little bit more, and, and he, everything I was saying, he seemed to receive it. And I didn't say, okay, Mr. Fred, now here's what you do, pray this prayer. I gave him the gospel, asked him if he understood it. He did, and at one point he said, he said, Justin, thank you for sharing that with me. He thanked me. And then the lady in the seat in front of us, she kind of leaned her head back like this, and she said, and I want to thank you too. I was listening to every word you said. Romans 1.16 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is the power of God? The gospel. The gospel is the power of God. You hold in your lap the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as recorded in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Everything that we need is right here. This is the power of God. Has there been a time in your life when you have been convicted by the Holy Spirit of God that you are a sinner and that your sins have earned you the wrath of God? And if you are not in Christ, do you understand that if you were to die in your sin, you would join the rich man? You will be in the lake of fire where the fire will not be quenched, the worm will not die, wailing, weeping, gnashing of teeth. You will endure the full, undiluted fury of God's wrath for all of eternity. Has there been a time in your life when you've been convicted by God's Holy Spirit of that truth? Has there been a time in your life when you've been convicted by God's Holy Spirit of the truth of the gospel? Has there been a time in your life when you have truly repented of your sin and placed your trust in Him? Do you have a godly sorrow over your sin? Are your affections different now than they used to be? Are your desires different now than they used to be? Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? Do you desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a desire for His Word? Do you have a hunger for the Word of God? Do you have a love for the brethren? Do you have a love for God's church? If you do, if you have that godly sorrow, if you love the brethren, if you have repented of sin and trust in Christ, know that one day you will have those pallbearers that Lazarus had. And that's the only way to have them. It's to be in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is not only inerrant, it's not only infallible, but it is sufficient. It is everything that we need. Lord, may we have a renewed confidence in Your Word a renewed confidence of what we hold in our hands, a renewed confidence of the power of the gospel. And may we go out into the highways and the hedges. May we share your truth with a lost world. And may we do so with boldness, yes, but with care, with love for those who need to hear your truth and need to be drawn to the shepherd. May we rest in your sufficient word. We thank you for it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would sanctify us in the truth of your word, all for the glory of Christ, our King. It's in his name we pray.